This is episode number 683 with Dr. Matar Haller, VP of Data and AI at ActiveFence. Today's episode is brought to you by Posit, the open source data science company, by Anaconda, the world's most popular Python distribution, and by withfeeling.ai, the company bringing humanity into AI. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, I'm joined by the wildly intelligent data scientist and communicator, Matar Haller. Matar is the Vice President of Data and AI at ActiveFence, an Israeli firm that has raised over $100 million in venture capital to protect online platforms and their users from malicious behavior and malicious content. She's renowned for her top-rated presentations at leading global data science conferences, She previously worked as Director of Algorithmic AI at Spark Beyond, an analytics platform. She holds a PhD in neuroscience from UC Berkeley, and prior to data science, she taught soldiers how to operate tanks. Today's episode has some technical moments that will resonate particularly well with hands-on data science practitioners, but for the most part, the episode will be interesting to anyone who wants to hear from a brilliant person on cutting-edge AI applications. In this episode, Matar details the database of evil that ActiveFence has amassed for identifying malicious content, how contextual AI considers adjacent and potentially multimodal information when classifying data, how to continuously adapt AI systems to real-world adversarial actors, the machine learning model deployment stack she uses, the data she collected directly from human brains using recording electrodes, and how this research relates to the brain-computer interfaces of the future, and why being a preschool teacher is a more intense job than the military. All right, you ready for this captivating episode? Let's go. Matar, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's awesome to have you on the show. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Israel, sunny, sunny Israel. So thanks for having me. Sunny, sunny Israel, is that always true? Uh, Always sunny Israel? Most of the time, it's pretty sunny. We have like two seasons. One is really long and it's really, really hot. And the other one is shorter and beautiful and not as hot, but still, we have a lot of sun. <laughs> and that's it's not nothing. That's, beaches. We have very nice beaches. We, it's, we have uh, tropic, like areas that are like more uh, green and nice and forests, uh, wildflowers, mountains, not all camels and deserts, although we have that too. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I guess it isn't cool, but I <laughs> it sounds hot, but uh, I will have to visit there sometime. I actually I have a grandmother who recently visited and said that it was her favorite place she's ever been. Oh, wow. Nice. So uh, come visit. I'll introduce you to my my chickens. There you go. This episode brought to you by the Israel Tourism Board. Um, and. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, but you do travel a lot as well. So you were recently in New York. You were at uh, MLConf, the machine learning conference in New York, which I wasn't able to make it to this year. But you were a speaker at MLConf. And Deborah Williams, who is a friend of mine and the acquisitions editor at Pearson that I've worked with for the books that I've created, all the video content I've created, 
she wrote me a long email summarizing how MLConf had gone. And she said that uh, by far the best speaker, <laughs> hands down, not, and not just her opinion, but the opinion of, quote, everyone that she spoke to was that you, Matar, were by far the best speaker at MLConf. So I was like, well, get her on the show. So uh, that's very, very uh, flattering. Uh, and now, like, take your expectations and lower them. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> very, um, very flattering. Thank you. Uh, that was a fun. That was a fun conference. Uh, there's lots of interesting ideas and good, good talks. So it, it was a. If she said nice. that, it, it, it's there was a high bar. So thank you. And so let's dig into what you do. So you are the VP of Data and Artificial Intelligence at Active Fence, which is a platform for content moderation, harmful content detection, and threat intelligence. And so um, to be clear, uh, ActiveFence is not a company that is doing the content moderating. It's not like there's this army of people at ActiveFence that are monitoring for uh, harmful content, but you provide tools, data and AI enhanced tools, that allow your customers to be able to do that, con that content moderation themselves more efficiently. And this seems to be quite a good niche. I could see on Crunchbase that ActiveFence has over $100 million in funding. Um, so yeah, it seems like a very valuable uh, niche to be filling for your customers. So tell us a bit about what this means. How do you use AI to be moderating content? How is that useful for threat intelligence? That kind of thing. Sure. Uh, so ActiveFence, uh, you're right. Like we are a platform. Uh, that basically our clients are any any company that has uh, user generated content. So whether it's uh, you know comments or chats or uploading videos or audio or any any place that you have a user that's able to upload content, there's a potential uh, for misuse of that and for uploading uh, malicious content. And our uh, goal, our mission is basically to help uh, platforms ensure that their users are safe, uh, that they have safe online interactions. Um, and so we do, we provide the tools to, to help them, to help them do that. Um, and really one of the, this is one of the biggest challenges that, that face uh, UGCs or uh, platforms with user-generated content um, is basically how can they detect um, this malicious behavior? Um, especially since, as we know, um, items can be in any format, right? So we need to be able to detect whether it's video, audio, text, images, um, all of that. Um, and we, and also it can be in any language and it can also be any number of violations, right? So you have sort of these, these big ones that, you know, you say, absolutely not. Like, I do not want child pornography. I do not want terror. I do not want, want supremacy. Um, but, but there's, there's like many, 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 many more, um, and different, different companies, different platforms have different levels of sensitivity to it, right? Even something that you can say as blatant is like, I do not want child pornography. No one wants child pornography on their platform. Um, but let's define it, right? What does that mean? Is, you know, baby's first bath. Is, is, is that is that something that we need to be aware of? Um, and so the right. tools that we provide need to be sort of contextually aware of you know the policy, um, the way thing the, the way that things are being used or presented. Um, and so for me uh, and for all you know my my, my teams, uh, it's a super super interesting space to be in because not only are the algorithms that we use really exciting uh, and sort of interesting, but I think the application right we're not we're not selling air like we're actually making it like impact it like make, making a real impact on like human interactions in a positive way. Right. So to what extent can you tell us about those exciting algorithms? 
So uh, that's that's an excellent question. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> so I think that so there's there's many different levels of things that we can do. Um, so the first thing is that we sort of we have our a platform, right? And this this is a platform that basically enables uh, it, it enables users to to or like moderators to come in to view the content to look at sort of where where it is and then to make a decision whether or not something uh, should be removed or not. Right? And this is the platform that we provide to our users. Um, in order to basically ensure that we're be able to protect the well-being of the moderators and to make sure they're only seeing things they actually need to be seen in order to be more efficient. Um, they, there's absolutely no need to review everything. Uh, there's like a, most of the things are benign. And even within the things that are harmful, there isn't really any need to view anything. Um, then in that, in that case, basically, uh, you want to make sure that you have sort of some sort of automated content moderation on top. Uh, and that's where mm-hmm. sort of we, we come in. Uh, yes. I guess that that ends up being important for the mental health of the people who are doing the content moderation as well, because I've read how people in those roles, it can be quite a harrowing experience when you're just watching beheadings and child porn all day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. uh, like moderator well-being is a huge, huge, huge issue. Uh, it's in the news, like periodically it comes up as like this, this, this huge thing. And the, an activist is like very, very concerned about this, right? We, um, we deal with data that is um, not pleasant, right? Uh, and so in the same way that I actively work to protect my data scientists and my engineers from exposure to this and only when it's really needed um, and with a lot of safeguards, we want to make sure that, you know, we're all human and we want to make sure that that moderators are also protected in the same way. And so if there's things that are sort of blatant, right. you know, a beheading, why do they need to watch that? There really isn't a need, right? Uh, there's things that are clearly, obviously violations are clearly, obviously malicious and should just, uh, and should just be um, removed and banned. Um, and so the algorithms that we use, basically we use what we, we, what we call contextual AI. Um, what this means is that we look at sort of the item in the context that it is being used. Um, but also within the item, right? We have a, our data model basically enables us to take sort of an item uh, even if it's just an image, and start breaking it apart into the components that it has so that then we can build those together uh, into a coherent risk score uh, where this risk score can take into account, you know, what, like, do we see any, um, like, weapons? Do we see any known logos? Do we see um, any known people of interest that we know have, you know, from their history or whatever, we know that they're, you know, spewing hate speech or misinformation and so forth. And then all those components together can combine to basically say, yes, this item is very probably, or very probable to be risky. Um, and so that's sort of how we, we build the full picture. And then of course there's other layers of that, right? Even for example, for chats, right? You can say, well, I can just use keywords, right? Like if I find the N word, then clearly this is very violative. Um, but what if it's someone saying, please don't call me that? Or what if it's a rap song? Or what if it's, um, you know, someone, like re like you know uh, like uh, community sort of reowning a word, um, and so like you know I'm you know I'm proud to be a whatever uh, some some slur, and so in those cases clearly I don't want to ban that, and if I'm just doing keywords which are sort of contextually unaware, um, then I lose that ability, uh, and so in those cases we do need to use sort of um, language models that are more contextually aware, uh, and these language models need to be. Uh, trained and tuned on these specific cases, because these are the cases that are always interesting. That does sound really interesting. And it sounds like the kind of thing that in this brave new world that we have of these really powerful large language models, 
um, that this is the kind of thing that they could do really well. Um, that a few years ago, um, it might have been a lot tougher. Um, and so it's it's great that, you, that, that you're presumably able to leverage these kinds of new technologies, especially these kind of multimodal technologies that are emer- emerging. So um, I don't think it's available to the public yet, but GPT-4 has this uh, image component where you can have an image, uh, you can provide an image, a photo of your fridge and ask GPT-4, what can I cook uh, mm-hmm. based on the ingredients that you see in this image? Mm-hmm. And so I th- that that kind of uh, multimodality, it sounds like it's something that you've been working with for a while. Yeah, we've been looking a lot at multimodality uh, because for, you know, if I'm going back to um, to the child pornography example, because that's for people something that's like so obvious, right? Like you should be able to know whether something is child porn or not. Like we all sort of viscerally know what is bad. Um, and yet sometimes you'll see, you know, a picture of a child and it looks fine, but you know, it's sort of like only the people that are in the know will know that, you know, whether like that's a face of a victim that's known or in the comments, there's links to off platform sites or something about the angle or a logo that's just like the picture itself is benign, but there's a logo that's associated with a studio that's been associated with child porn or the title or the description. And so sometimes, sometimes it's enough to look at the image. Sometimes it's enough to look, it's enough to look at the surroundings, um, but oftentimes it's, it's the combination. Um, and I mean, in terms of like uh, these gener- the generative AI, um, right now is sort of this sort of like perfect storm for, for trust and safety, right? Because uh, we're going to be having sort of U.S. elections soon. And so political disinformation is something that's like very, very pertinent um, and is now sort of having these large language, these large language models sort of lowers the bar for the entry of bad actors, right? Suddenly, mm-hmm. if it used to be mm-hmm. that things could either be like really high quality, but low scale or low quality and easy to catch in high scale, now that's not even a, that's not an issue, right? Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's like an enabling technology that, you know, can, it's obviously, I, I like, I'm, I don't like no fear mongering here. I think it's like, has a lot of good that it can do, um, but we need to be aware of how it can be used and how we can come and be prepared for it. This episode is brought to you by Posit, the open source data science company. Posit makes the best tools for data scientists who love open source, period, no matter which language they prefer. Posit's popular RStudio IDE and enterprise products like Posit Workbench, Connect, and Package Manager, these all help individuals, teams, and organizations scale R and Python development easily and securely. Produce higher quality analysis faster with great data science tools. Visit posit.co, that's P-O-S-I-T.co, to learn more. Yeah, no question. So we, you know, famously in the United States in the 2008 election cycle, there was a lot of, there were foreign actors um, involved in creating disinformation um, in Eastern European kind of farms. And you can imagine yeah, exactly like you're saying, these kinds of tools like GPT-4 make it a lot easier to create a lot more content because you don't need to have a human typing out everything. So much more cheaply, it probably like several orders of magnitude, less expensive to be generating uh, malicious content, misleading content, disinformation. So yeah, it is interesting that, um, yeah, heading into, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I guess we're always heading into an election cycle somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and so it's something never ends. <laughs> like, yeah, it's crazy in the US to me that uh, people in the, in the lower house that they they have a two year election cycle, and mm-hmm. so like 
you spend a few months litigating <laughs> and then it's back to fundraising. Exactly. Uh, it's wild. Uh, yeah. But, but, but I think it's, what's interesting is that like disinformation is only one aspect of it, right? Um, we're seeing uh, like computer generated or, you know, uh, generative AI generated uh, child pornography. Um, and then at this point, the question is, is, is it still violative? And I think, yes, right. Like we don't want that stuff out there. Um, I don't care whether something is real or fake. It's, it's still child porn and it should be, right. um, right. it should be banned. And then, and then there's a second level of like, well, unless I'm trying to find who the victim is and then I do care. And then there's like another level of detection that needs to be built on top of that. Is it tricky? I mean, it must be tricky. Something that must um, add an extra level of complexity to this is that presumably the nefarious actors out there are constantly shifting and trying to evade detection right. by you. So in with when many of our listeners and myself, when we're building machine learning models, we don't have to worry about somebody trying to outwit the model. Um, you know, I, you can build a machine learning classifier to detect images of cats and dogs. And it's not like the cats are like trying to look like dogs <laughs> and are going to come up with ways of like dressing to look more like dogs. Totally. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I've been thinking about it in terms of like how how is what I do different from car detection, right? Like that's sort of, you know, or cat detection or anything um, or yeah. Anyway, there's a million examples. Uh, and so I think there's in addition to the fact that it's evasive and adversarial, right? So uh, there's, you know, examples of um, like QAnon, which is uh, a group that's bans on some platforms will, you know, change their text to be Q, like C-U-E. Uh, and then you have to basically catch it by knowing to look for that. And to know to look for that, that's already subject matter expertise. And that's one thing that activists we have, you know, you mentioned threat intelligence. And so we have intelligence analysts that this is what they do, right? They, they're experts in, you know, misinformation or in hate speech and, or in terror. And they research these groups. They know about sort of the latest hashtags, or trends, um, like what emojis they're using now um, uh, and so forth. Uh, and then basically that is able to, you know, they're able to sort of surface data that's relevant. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, the, the latest, there's, you know, uh, a hate, a hate group that was founded in like this last June or this last October and already, you know, on, on different social networks with their logo spewing hate. And so to catch those, to know those, to put, and then those can feed back into our algorithms and I can know to look for those logos, to look for those phrases, to look for those actors. Um, and so then I'm able to sort of stay on top of it on the fact that yes, it's adversarial. I, I have the subject matter expertise. It's extremely non-stationary, right? I have new actors coming up all the time, right? If I'm looking for cats and dogs, like how much have they really changed? They're, they're not going to change, right? They're right. going to have four legs, a tail right. in years. Um, versus here, the landscape is very non, because it's adversarial, it's extremely non-stationary. And so that's why I need to have my subject matter experts that are constantly feeding me more information of like, oh, this is a new slang term. Oh, this is a new slur um, and so forth. Is there a flywheel that uh, gives active fence a defensible moat between this content moderation and the threat intelligence? So I'm just kind of, I was, I just kind of had this brainwave here and you can correct me if I'm thinking about this incorrectly, but so you have the content moderation aspect of the platform. So machine learning models are detecting, hey, you know, we think that there's, this is high risk uh, content over here automatically. Um, and then maybe that automation can assist the threat intelligence part of the company. And then the threat intelligence people in turn are keeping tabs on what's going on, um, 
through a combination of more manual intelligence work, as well as this automatic, automatically assistive intelligence work that your content moderation side is helping with. And then they can feed back into the content moderation, like, hey, like here's something else you need to be able to look for. We need to train a machine learning model to be able to detect this kind of thing. Uh, because yeah, like, you know, there's this new logo that you need to be looking out for. Totally. You nailed it. Yeah. Uh, we love flywheels at ActEvents. We always say like, no, stra- no strategy deck is complete without a flywheel. Um, and so, <laughs> and so absolutely. Um, it's exactly as you described. So um, we have our uh, intelligence analysts that are, you know, find, finding finding things, right? Those feed into the algorithms, make our algorithms better. And then we have incoming data collection, whether the data is like we go out and practically collect it or we get data, you know, clients are sending us data being like, hey, is this violative or not? Um, And then that's basically can then be fed back into the intelligence analysts. So for things that come from clients, sometimes it's things that they haven't seen before that they they don't know. Often they they do know it, but because we're also out there collecting data proactively, then that's basically able to feed back in. And one core component of this flywheel is something that um, is... uh, We've, we've, it's, it's, it's our proprietary database of sort of a violative content. Um, and what this means is that basically we have data that we've already identified, whether it's images or audio or videos or text that we've already identified as being violative of a policy um, or malicious. Uh, we can hash that. Uh, and then new content that comes in can be compared to that, right? And then that also helps us, first of all, to be more efficient. Um, but also we can proactively enlarge, we don't need to wait for data to come in, right? We can proactively enlarge this proprietary database by going out there, going to sources that we know are problematic. Um, and that that's what our intelligence analysts can help us with. And then next time that it comes in, basically we've, we've already seen it before. Um, and so there's definitely this sort of interaction, this flywheel between the intelligence analysts, the, the humans and the AI, um, one sort of feeding off the other. Yes. So this is the database of evil that you've talked about publicly before, right? And so uh, to give a bit of an analogy, this is kind of like how antivirus solutions have a database of known viruses. And then if that line of code that's known to be malicious has come across on your own hardware, that can be compared against this database. And you can say, okay, this is the threat. Um, We need to remove this uh, part of your file system. So similarly, you have this database of, of bad content of harmful content. Um, and, and yeah, it's proprietary. Um, so, okay. I, that, I think that, yeah, you, you have more to say about that. <laughs> so my, <laughs> the more thing that I have to say about that is only that, uh, yeah. to bring us back to the, to the idea that, uh, we're in an adversarial space. Uh, and if, if we keep, sort of keep this in mind, it's like we're in the space that's adversarial that requires subject matter expertise. It's, or it's adversarial in the base that requires subject matter expertise. It's non-stationary, it's multidimensional. Um, and so once we keep those, uh, and, and it requires context. And once we keep those in mind, then it sort of helps us frame how we want to use this database of evil, um, but also, or this proprietary database, but also like what it needs to sort of uh, uh, be robust against, right? So um, if if we're in a place that requires subject matter expertise, and sure, then we can keep enlarging our data, like all of our databases, right, uh, with our intelligence analysts. and. It's a non-stationary, so we need to make sure that it's always updated. Like having a snapshot of this database isn't enough, right? There's going to be new things. But also, mm-hmm. if we're if we're in a place that's inherently adversarial, then we need to make sure that this database is also robust to advers- to adversarial manipulations. What does that mean? Uh, for example, if I have like a um, very hateful song, um, like you know, glorifying the Holocaust, for example, uh, like a, a a love song glorifying the Holocaust, right? These things exist. Um, then, and I know that this is banned on platforms, 
then uh, I can speed it up, right? And then in the comments or in the title or somewhere, I can say, listen to this at half speed. And then now, now I've basically like made it against all, you know, made it past all kinds of defenses. And so we need to make sure, and the same thing with images, right? I can like rotate it. I can grayscale it. I can mirror it. I can do all sorts of things. And so I need to make sure that um, my hashing, uh, any hashing algorithm that I have is robust to these manipulations up to a point, right? Because I'm always going to, it's always this idea of like precision versus recall. Like, do I want to now unfairly capture things that shouldn't be captured, right? And, and unfairly uh, say that they are uh, violative? Probably not. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky line, but it's, it's, that's the line that is when any content moderation algorithm, um, we're always trying to figure out what, where things should, wh where the boundaries should go. And I guess that's key to why having a human in the loop in, in these kinds of decisions so that people can, um, if they're unfairly forced to remove content, there should be some kind of appeals process in the platform, um, or, yeah, or human reviewer that can make some final decisions. So I, I guess kind of going back to a point earlier in the conversation, when something is really flagrant and your risk score, which I assume is kind of similar to in machine learning, having a binary classifier where you have a confidence on, yeah, whether, how likely is this to be um, malicious content, totally. harmful content? Um, and so if that is very high, if you're like, okay, this is 0.99999, we're just like, there's no point in sending this to a human to review. But if mm -hmm. it's 0.8 or 0.7, then like there might be something here somebody should review before a decision is made. Um, and yeah, same thing on the flip side when it's, yeah, even even things that are, yeah. So if, if something does get flagged automatically, because there's still, everything is probabilistic in machine learning. So there's going to be cases where uh, the algorithm is very confident and there's still a, and, and it, due to some circumstance you're describing where like a, um, a group has re-owned something that has been a racial slur historically, um, there should be the opportunity for that person to say, no, like I have, like, <laughs> I should be able to, yeah. So these, totally, these yeah. it kind of works both ways. So, so our risk score is exactly as you describe and like everything is probabilistic. And, and also it's, it's a business use case, uh, where they want it, like how much re manual review they want, right? Like maybe for a child's plat like a platform for children, um, they say, you know what, just ban everything. Like, so what if the kids like can't chat about, you know, it's fine. Um, but maybe right. for like other platforms, like a news the, platform, the kids can't <laughs> chat about racial slurs. So. Yeah, but fine. I I'm okay with that. Like, I don't care. For me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my kids can just like type three words. That's okay. And my, my kids are anyway, they're on, they're getting cell phones when they're 35, like until then deal with it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but yeah, but so, so it's exactly that. Right. But other platforms would be like, you know what? Even if it's at, at 99, like for the things that are 99s, like we, we want to review them because we'd, we would rather err on the side of like free speech or whatever. Um, uh, and so I think that also in terms of appeals, that's a super important point. That's something that is definitely uh, critical in this because this is like, you know, people are posting things and they don't want to be unfairly punished. Um, and actually right now, I think that the, the world of trust and safety is having its GDPR moment, right? Like GDPR was, is for those of you that are not familiar, it was like privacy regulation passed in the EU that ended up having huge sweeping effect because it was basically any time that a EU, that a citizen of the EU is on an online platform, then GDPR is effect like is effective on them in terms of like you know uh, what cookies and what can be stored and and so forth. And you've probably all seen like you know the the notifications on on your browsers um, about privacy regulations. And so now trust and safety is having its GDPR moment with the DSA. 
um, which is the Digital Services Act. It's passed by the EU last year. Um, and it basically also puts in protections for trust and safety. It codifies them by law um, in, sort of in a similar way um, with fines and so forth. And while it's still new for smaller tech companies, um, big, like the very big uh, online companies, they have like, they're already, it's like already being rolling in and they're ro- rolling out and there's like very strict regulations on them uh, that they need to follow. And it'll, it'll trickle down probably um, to everyone. And so like regulation, fines are on the table. Um, and so these businesses need these tools to be compliant. And part of that is also auditing and understanding, like part of the DSA is like auditing and understanding why things were banned and, and explaining it and so forth. And so that's another thing that we invest in is explainability, right? Like if I'm giving a score, then I want to be able to explain why, like, because a lot of times these things are, you need that subject matter expertise to understand that, oh, like this particular logo is actually associated with this particular terror group or hate group or child pornography studio or whatever. Nice. Yeah. So I can see how the evolving regulatory landscape uh, ends up being uh, important, probably helpful to you as you develop these algorithms. Um, we've talked already about um, about harmful content kind of in static, in, uh, you know, in posted content. Um, but there's also, there's something that we hear a lot in the news recently, we, we see increasingly in the news is not just um, content that's been posted, but content that is streaming real time. So um, there have been incidences in the US recently of um, shootings being live streamed to social media platforms. Um, and so this happening in real time, that must add an extra layer of complexity to some of the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, there's been like horrific instances of uh, live streaming um, in the US and, and elsewhere. Um, and so there's a couple of ways to approach that. Um, one of which is that you, we can put really, really small content moderation uh, models sort of on the edge device, right? So um, that that does sort of some something basic to catch sort of the, the blatant stuff, um, and then you know raise it up for for human review. Because I think in these in these cases of, of live streams, it's it's tricky. We're still learning the space, and we would want someone to just, just like if we flag it to to take a look at it. Um, maybe err on the side of flagging too much, and then having someone take a look at it again. It's it's always it's a business question of like what's the platform? What, what are we looking for? Um, and so you know have some sort of like detector of, I don't know, gunshots or of something that's, that, you know, a small lean model edge device able to flag it right away. We can also do something where we are, you know, once the content makes it to the servers, sample frame, like well, there's a question of like, what do you want to moderate? Like every single frame? Do you want to sample every minute, every second? Like at what there's, there's a huge question. I think what makes this so challenging is just the scale, right? You have like so much data streaming in um, and then do the same thing, sample, and then look for maybe more, more complex things. Right. Um, so those are sort of like the, the typical things. And that's where you're really focusing on the content itself, right? Um, that's coming in. But a lot of these times when when you're when you're live streaming something like this, then you know, the 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 perpetrator may have like, you know, pre-shared this somewhere. There's people that are, you know, joining the stream that are commenting. And now it's now suddenly you have a much, much richer source of information, right? You can look at who are the other users, who is the user that's streaming, what else have they streamed in the past? What, what other groups have they been in? What are people writing in the comments? Like and so forth. And suddenly now you might be able to catch it or at least flag it just from the surrounding information, right? Like there's there's enough indicators of risk from the things that are around it. We're sure you want to moderate the content, you want to look at it and so forth. However, <laughs> you would want to basically look at um, 
look at the other markers of risk around the content itself to make your job easier and faster and more efficient. Did you know that Anaconda is the world's most popular platform for developing and deploying secure Python solutions faster? Anaconda solutions enable practitioners and institutions around the world to securely harness the power of open source. And their cloud platform is a place where you can learn and share within the Python community. Master your Python skills with on-demand courses, cloud-hosted notebooks, webinars, and so much more. See why over 35 million users trust Anaconda by heading to superdatascience.com anaconda. You'll find the page pre-populated with our special code SDS so you'll get your first 30 days free. Yep, that's 30 days of free Python training at superdatascience.com slash anaconda. Gotcha, so yeah, so it obviously is more complex to be moderating harmful content when you're thinking about it in a real-time situation, but as you point out, having smaller threat detection models on the edge device, so on mobile phones, maybe on laptops, being able to detect these issues in real time and potentially flag those to the social media platform. Um, and then also once the real-time data is reaching the servers of these platforms, you can be sampling at some appropriate interval um, in order to be uh, trying to detect whether harmful content, so yeah, the sound of gunshots, and then so it can be reviewed as to whether this is like video game gunshots um, or not. And then something, so probably in a circumstance like that, whether it's real world gunshots or video game gunshots, we're going to be able to uh, tell more easily because of the contextual information that surrounds that. So the, the kind of text that people post in response is probably going to be quite different and classifiably different um, in a video game where people, there might be more like, uh, well, I don't want to even speculate. <laughs> yeah, love, love, yeah, but yeah. but but I would say that you know, <laughs> if we're thinking if we're thinking about it, and like I'm kind of thinking thinking out loud uh, and like refining a bit what I said earlier is that so you have something on the edge device that does like um, you know ba more basic like a smaller model that does ba more basic content moderation, and then instead of it flagging a human, like remember that everything is making it to the cloud, and so we're sampling, and so things that have been flagged by the edge device can then either have like more like uh, different, like more uh, uh, tightly spaced samples or can have more deeper analysis on it. Like it, it's, it's basically a funnel, right? And again, it depends what you discover on the edge device. Like maybe you might want to right away flag it to user and be like, listen, like there's, this is not something that that is very likely to be in the gray zone. Um, and then also uh, you can look at the surrounding content. You don't need to wait for the content to be uploaded to the server or anything, right? Like you have the surrounding content, it's like text and who the user is. And like where, you know, do, do we recognize this user? Where else have they posted before? What the users that are commenting, like where else are they? And this is where actually like a graphical data model comes in handy, right? Because now you have all these relations between users um, and you can see like, what have they liked before? What groups are they in? Uh, who have they interacted with and so forth? And then um, if these are people that are known to us, then we can say, well, actually like this is a user that if we see them here, this is, it, it adds to the probability of risk. All right, so Matar, you've given us a interesting overview of how content moderation works in your automated platform for detecting harmful content. Um, so things like contextual AI needing to be able to adapt to adversarial opponents, the flywheel between content moderation and threat intelligence that's helpful to you, the database of evil, um, and how there's flexibility in the way that information is hashed in there so that you can be detecting um, new variations um, that are adjacent to uh, existing known harmful content, 
And then most recently, we just talked about the um, specific um, circumstances of real-time streaming and how we can be addressing uh, harmful content in those circumstances. So uh, very interesting. And so I'm curious to what extent you can tell us about the kinds of technologies that you use to make the platform happen. So you know, what kinds of programming languages, obviously we're not, you can't get into uh, a level of detail that would allow adversarial actors oh. to be uh, more effective adversarially. <laughs> adversarial um, actors, but, listen uh, in now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so yeah. I, and, and, and again, uh, I'm giving it with the caveat that like the parts that, uh, that I deal with are sort of like the, the, the data, the MLOps, the engineering, um, the API, um, the, the world of, uh, of front end is uh, beautiful and mysterious to me. Um, so I can like list technologies they use there, but they don't mean that much to me. Um, I'm more, I've always been sort of like a, a back end geek. Um, and so in terms of stuff that we do, obviously data, people do Python, duh. Um, we also use uh, Node and, um, and TypeScript. Uh, we serve our models on uh, Kubernetes. Uh, we have, we've done a lot of work in house of, uh, selecting of like write, writing stuff to basically select the correct instance type for a given model so that you get really good the best utilization uh, we've also uh, are working on like model in versus model out being like do we bake the model into the image or does the or do we like or when we spin up uh, the pod like do we bring the model from outside basically in order to uh, maximize our uh, or minimize our uptime because uh, we basically need to be able to deal with really really high throughput um, and low latency. Um, and so, uh, and also we don't want to be just like burning money on machines that are up for no reason. Uh, and so we have HPA that we then tune, and then we can basically spin up and spin down our machines as we need. Um, and then be smart about which machines we're spinning up. Uh, and also if we're able to sometimes sort of put multiple models on one machine, uh, or batch the requests to the machine. Um, and we do all sorts of optimizations to make sure that we're, uh, high throughput, low SLA. Nice. Uh, very interesting. Thank you for being able to go into uh, even that level of detail. Um, so clearly you have a really deep understanding of not just uh, data science and modeling, but of backend engineering. So like scaling, being able to meet uh, SLAs, uh, Kubernetes. Um, so super interesting. I didn't know from my research beforehand that you had that kind of expertise as well. Um, so let's dig into your background a little bit to see how this all came about. So uh, you did a neuroscience PhD at UC Berkeley, uh, which is, I think, a great decision. I also did a neuroscience PhD. So I, <laughs> I, I for, for me, that was something that I, I got into it because I was fascinated as to how um, chemicals, biology, physics uh, create a conscious experience. And so like everything that you think, everything that you do um, in some way that we obviously are nowhere near fully elucidating can be reduced down to physical processes. And so I wanted to dig into that as much as I could. But then as I got started in the PhD, I was like, wow, uh, data set sizes are getting really big. It seems like there's really interesting things that we could be doing there, detecting patterns in data, identifying causal direction in data. And so uh, I went down this road of uh, focusing on programming and machine learning because I knew that whether I stayed in academia or not, those would be transferable skills. And um, I'm not surprised, <laughs> I guess, that that ended up being uh, true. However, um, 
So in your PhD, I know that you were uh, recording activity from surgically implanted electrodes in human brains. And I made this joke before we started recording about how, you know, I felt, you know, I really feel like I made the right choice uh, sticking to uh, silicon experiments or analyzing data as opposed to doing things in, uh, you know, learning how to implant electrodes into a ferret. And I was making this joke about how, you know, people in my cohort in my PhD were doing that kind of thing. Uh, but then uh, the exact person that I was thinking of ended up has a really nice job at Google DeepMind. Um, so there's, it, so it seems like you have insight into that. So I, I ended up getting here. <laughs> Where are we going? A long roundabout way, but we kind of have this. So tell us about your PhD, how that relates to work you're doing today. Um, there's also there's the Insight Data Science Fellowship Program that you used to transition from your PhD, from your academic background into industrial data science. So it'd be interesting to hear about that. And then to finally <laughs> have it all make sense <laughs> as to how I started off this entire long transition is that um, I mentioned how you have it's you have a rich understanding of the back end of a software platform. And so just kind of how this all came about, your your rich depth of knowledge in the field. Yes. Uh, the first question, let's start with, with the first one. So uh, my PhD. So yes, my PhD, um, I was uh, recording uh, electrodes, for, recording data from electrodes, uh, surgically implanted human brains. Um, basically, what I wanted was, you know, animal quality data from humans, right? With animal research, uh, you can stick electrodes where you want, uh, get really beautiful data. You could do in slices, you could do, uh, you know, from train monkeys for years to do a task and, and then get just beautiful recordings uh, of just like signals for hours and hours of neurons at work. Uh, and with humans, you're often limited to things that are uh, either uh, slow, so fMRI, and it's like, you know, you, you see it many, 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 many degrees removed. You're actually measuring blood flow. You're not even measuring like direct brain activity. Um, so you're like measuring a side effect of thinking, um, or you can do EEG, which is then, you know, uh, electrical signals filtered through the scalp. Um, and even with with technologies like MEG and so forth, um, which is magnetoencephalography, it's it's not the same. You're not you're not at you're not on the brain. Uh, and then this really unique opportunity opens up um, uh, in the laboratory of uh, Dr. Robert Knight at Berkeley, uh, which is basically to uh, work with patients that are undergoing uh, brain surgery, often for epilepsy. So uh, in, in epilepsy that can't be treated with medicine. Um, right, they keep having recurrent seizures, and so the only solution is to go and to surgically remove the problematic area of the brain. However, uh, before that's done, you need to map out the brain to ensure that you know you you stop the seizures, but the person is left you know uh, aphasic, like they can't speak, or you stop seizures and suddenly um, they can't you know they're blind. Um, <clears throat> and so what you want to do is you want to basically map out uh, the areas of the cortex around the region of interest to ensure that first of all you can localize exactly where the seizure is, because remember until you really get in there everything is filtered through the scalp and you, you have like, it's really, you can't tell. Um, and so to figure out like where the focal point is and also what's around it. Um, and so these people, basically what happens is they come in uh, for surgery. Uh, they have a craniotomy. The scalp is, the skull is removed. The electrodes are implanted uh, and then they're bandaged up. And then they're in the hospital for a week with electrodes coming out of the brain, hooked up to an amplifier, a preamp and then to an amp. Um, and the best case scenario for them, and then their med, their meds are tapered, um, and there, there, there's there's all kinds of things, all many many things are done to try to induce a seizure because the best case scenario is that basically on the first day 
they have seizures, you localize it, you figure out exactly what's around it. And then like the next day they're, they're in surgery, they remove it and you're done. Oftentimes that's not the case. Uh, you need to work to induce the seizure, sleep deprivation, uh, strobe lights, all, all sorts of things to, to get them right. Um, and so we could, uh, most of the time these people are like sitting in the hospital, just kind of like waiting around, right. Um, watching TV or, you know, whatever. And then we come in and, and if they, if they consent, then, then we can come and we can run all sorts of tasks based. We, we ensure that the task is matched to the regions of the brain that are mapped, right. There's no point in doing a memory task. If you know, the, the parts of the brain are only motor and so forth, or a motor task, if they're only looking at, at language regions. Um, and I found this job like very, very meaningful in terms of science outreach, like explain to them the value that they have, that, that they have for science and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I spent a lot of time just, you know, talking to them about the brain and about my research and so forth. I also found it like emotionally incredibly difficult um, because you're meeting these people pretty much at the worst time of their lives, right? Like this is just a terrible situation to be in. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's challenging, it's rewarding. It's basically, you know, in, in a way that you don't expect your PhD to be right. Like you go and you're like, give me data, I'll analyze data. Great. Um, and then there's, there's this, uh, and so I would come in and I would, my, the task that I was interested in, I was basically interested in sort of tracking the, the path of a decision in the brain. So uh, I would basically, in, in the beginning, I just had my one task, but then I realized that basically all tasks that we record are decision tasks. So I entered, I like dipped my foot into like the world of, you know, big data where I could basically take all the tasks that were run. Um, and any time that there's sort of a decision to be made, then you have sort of like a motor decision, right? Like you see a stimulus, right? So that goes, or you hear something. So that goes into like your visual cortex or through auditory cortex. And then it needs to make it to the decision-making area of the brain, right? To the, the prefrontal cortex, which is where it sort of moves forward in the brain. You need to make a decision. The decision is made and then it needs to go back to the motor cortex to execute the decision. And what I want to do is I, I basically tracked that, that loop uh, in the brain and was basically able to look at the activity uh, in the prefrontal cortex and basically say, aha, look, like the sustained activity that I see in the prefrontal cortex correlates with, you know, the reaction time, right? I'm able to, to sort of see when they'll trigger a reaction without looking at um, at the motor cortex. I can look, I can see errors. I can see that like the amplitude is also correlated with errors, I'm basically tracking a thought through the brain. And because I was on the brain, uh, I had extremely fast um, like recordings of, of what was going on. So it wasn't filtered through anything. The future of AI shouldn't be just about productivity. An AI agent with the capacity to grow alongside you long-term could become a companion that supports your emotional well-being. Peridot, an AI companion app developed by With Feeling AI, reimagines the way humans interact with AI today. Using their proprietary large language models, Peridot AI agents store your likes and dislikes in a long-term memory system, enabling them to recall important details about you and incorporate those details into dialogue without LLM's typical context window limitations. Explore what the future of human AI interactions could be like this very day by downloading the Peridot app via the Apple App Store or Google Play, or by visiting peridot.ai on the web. That is so fascinating. I really did just sit at a computer and like <laughs> learn the programming languages and machine learning algorithms, which was interesting, but wow. I mean, yeah, you're really doing real valuable work. And so I think some of that work would go back to like Wilder Penfield. Yes. So that's, that's when you're actually looking and you're, yeah, I mean, that's like the Walter Pelton is like the grandfather of, of everything that we did. Um, 
the electrodes that I was using, and again, like things here moved really, really fast. And my PhD was a while ago. Um, I'm not dating myself, but it, it wasn't yesterday. Um, and uh, electrodes have gotten since then smaller. There's also a lot of single unit recordings um, where uh, you can actually put in an electrode and record from into like smaller populations, right? My, my electrodes were, were pretty big and kind of far apart. Um, so I'm recording from larger populations. But yes, it all comes back to um, like classic neuroscience. Um, and as I was doing it, so that's like the data collection, right? But then you collect the data and it's such a rich data set that like they can sustain you forever. And like the data sets that I collected are still being used uh, for studies because it's like so it's like rare data. It's expensive data. It's rich data. You can look at it in many different ways. Um, and so I took my data and data from other studies. And then, and, and as I was, as I was working, I said, you know, the brain is amazing, right? There's like, no, I don't think anyone, uh, in our field can, can argue about that. Um, however, what I found myself like drawn to where the algorithms, the machine learning, the statistics, the signal processing, uh, the programming languages, like all of the things that maybe you would say, oh, those are just the methods. I found that those, that those were the parts of the papers that I was reading. Those are like the algorithms. Those are the parts that I was like most drawn to. Um, and so, um, then it was kind of like a natural transition from there to be like, okay, like this is, this is what I, this is what I'm actually more, more interested in, um, most of the time. So that, that was how I found myself there. Um, I did an, like an NLP class towards the end, uh, of my PhD kind of in secret, uh, <laughs> and then like the rest is history. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then the, the insight program, um, so we've had guests on the past that did this fellowship as well. So it's intended for, I think, primarily people who have already done an academic PhD, have, have a strong quantitative background like you did. You're doing tons of, like you say, uh, uh, machine learning kind of data science techniques. Um, so things like time series analysis, dimensionality reduction, clustering, regression, data permutation. So you had all this uh, existing experience. And then so the, the Insight Data Science Program um, was that a useful transition after you'd done all that? You'd done the, NL, the secret NLP course. Um, and uh, yeah, was, was that still useful um, for making the transition to industry? Oh, absolutely. Insight Data Science is uh, wonderful. Uh, they, what they do is they basically they take people that, you know, we already have all of these skills and we've done, we've done data science and, you know, we've done machine learning and we've done programming, but we're totally, totally clueless about the real world because we're academics, right? We know nothing. Um, and basically they help us sort of frame what we've done in the context of industry. So talking about like, right. startups and funding and jobs and like, what is it like to work? And then also things just like best, best practices, right? Like, you know, version control and things like that, which some people do in their PhD, some people don't do like some people's PhD is like hundred percent right. in like a Jupiter in like a single Jupiter notebook. Um, and so basically like they, they kind of get you up to speed for like, and like some, like for gaps that you have there, but also just frame what you've done in the context of, okay, this is industry. Like here is why, what you have is valuable. Here is how you can use the things that you've done in industry. So they show, you know, people come in, they, they sort of like, you know, hey, look, here's how, here's like fraud detection at this company. And you're like, oh, hey, like I, I, I've done that. I've done it, and sort of kind of tie it together for you. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you know, um, like salary negotiation, like all, all of these like things. And then at the, what, what you end up doing is they say, okay, in your PhD, you had like five, six, seven years to work on something. Now you have 
three weeks to put together a project that actually brings concrete impact that like can bring be impactful and that you can like pitch it. Um, and then that kind of puts you in the mindset of like, what is a POC? Um, and that also helps employers get around the bias of like, God, I don't want to hire an academic, like I'm not get anything done. Right, right, right. And I think there's, there's a lot of relationships between insight and future employers. Mm-hmm. Lots of employers are looking for great uh, data science talent, like the people that are in intaked, mm-hmm. intaken into the inside data science program. And, uh, so yes, you end up with this flywheel. <laughs> um, ah. so, and I just, I want to quickly go back uh, before we transition away from what you were doing with your PhD and how you got to what you're doing today. I just, I want to talk a little bit more about, so I mentioned uh, Wilder Penfield and how he was, so he was, I guess the first person to be able to map the human cortex to the level of detail. And it was, I think it was the same situation. It was, it was many decades ago, like the 1950s or something, but um, same kind of thing, stroke patients, open skull. And so recording um, from these individual electrodes over the whole brain. And so that gave this map of the whole, um, so there's this somatosensory homunculus and right. this motor homunculus. So it's this like really cool, I encourage our listeners and I'll try to remember to um, include in the show notes, a link to some images of this homunculus that it shows you. So I think homunculus is Latin for like little man. Mm -hmm. And so it's the idea of this, um, when you, as you go over the motor cortex or the sensory cortex in the brain, there's this map of, of your body. And, um, it isn't anatomically correct in terms of, uh, scale, so for example, uh, for both the, the sensory as well as the motor homunculus, the hands are huge because so you, you have so much um, you have so much detailed sensory perception as well as motor perception in your hands. Um, and I remember like the lips are huge. The, lips, the tongue. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, you can so do, stuff you like can do your a, back is small. Yeah, exactly. I think we had the same textbook. Um, so one thing you could do is you could take a, you could take a paper clip, right? And you can like uh, put it together. So like the, the its points are like, uh, at some distance apart. And, uh, you could find like, what is the closest distance on your back basically that you're, that you can tell them apart because at some point, like you just, you're not sensitive enough on your back to tell them apart. And then you put it on your lips and immediately you're like, Oh wow, these are super far apart. And that basically is reflective of the fact that you have less representation, less sensory representation of your back than of your lips in your, in your sensory strip. Cool. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to recap on that. Oh, and then, yeah. So so, and there, I, there's a re- very specific reason why I brought this back up, not just because it's really interesting, which I think it is in and of itself, but you were talking about how recording electrodes. So I was thinking about how the recording electrodes that while the Penfield would have been working with, uh, many, many decades ago, not many centuries, <laughs> many decades ago, wow. uh, thousands of years ago, <laughs> <laughs> I, this podcast will be listened to for millennia. Uh, it'll all be confusing. Uh, so, um, uh, the the recording lectures would have been much bigger that he was working with than you were working with. And you were talking about how in recent years they've become even smaller. And so then that got me thinking about how um, there is this push with companies like Elon Musk's Neuralink um, to have brain computer interfaces eventually that aren't just for people who have serious um, issues and have their skull opened, but there's this um, move towards in our lifetime, potentially having some way of having recording electrodes on our brains without needing to have invasive surgery. And so 
I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. And I also, I'm going to be asking you after this episode as to whether you happen to know any amazing guests that could dig deep into Ooh. that topic. Uh, yeah, I have some ideas. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so I, so not all, so actually even today, not all, um, uh, brain, uh, uh, brain computer interface is, uh, super invasive. I mean, it's invasive in the sense that like you have an electrode in the brain, like that's invasive, right. But not for all of them, do you need like a craniotomy that, that opens everything. Right. Uh, so for example, you have, uh, for Parkinson's patients, deep brain stimulation, right. Where they're, they basically right. open a hole, they bring, they, they put in an electrode very, very specific to the, to the substantia nigra, which is a place in the brainstem uh, where the black uh, substance. Yeah, there you go. Uh, someone remembers their <laughs> neuroanatomy, uh, where, where basically, uh, you know, uh, produces dopamine. And then when cells there start to die, uh, then, then you need to basically stimulate it, uh, in order to get, to get around the fact that you're not, it's, it's not functioning. Uh, and so that, that's, again, that's just like an electrode that's, that's, that's brought in and that's used to stimulate. And actually, uh, there's like, uh, you know, how do you decide how much to stimulate or whatever? There's like a, like a, a device that you can like calibrate and then decide how much to, um, uh, uh, to, to stimulate. And so that's, you know, that doesn't require massive cranium. I mean, that's already like a feedback loop that you have. That's, it's been, it's been around for a really long time. Um, you also have things that are, uh, more invasive, but long-term. So the, the patients that I was discussing, they basically have it, have the electrodes in temporarily, right there. They have the cranium, the electrodes are put in wires coming out of the head. Once they have seizures and everything's localized in the best case, they remove it, skulls back in, electrodes gone. Um, however, uh, there's also different companies, uh, for example, Neuropace, uh, which they actually permanently implant an electrode strip in the, in the person's brain. Uh, and then they're able to basically record ongoing. And the idea is that they're able to predict or give some sort of like lead way before a seizure happens and then stimulate the stimulate to stop the seizure. Um, and, and they, and they record and then that's uploaded to, to their servers. Um, and so, and that's already, that's also already there. That's like, there's patients walking around with it right now. Um, and so I think Elon Musk's is like the next step of that where it's like, okay, it's not clinical and let's see how we can get it smaller and smaller. And if we think about like Moore's law and what he said about things getting like, you know, uh, more and more fitting and getting smaller and smaller. Uh, it, I think, I think we'll, we'll be there. We'll be there shortly. Um, and then it's a matter of like, what, like, how, how do you make it minimally invasive? How do you make it so that, because at some point, like in terms of like how long can it be in before cells start to die, before the body starts to reject it. Um, uh, and basically there's a difference between just recording and stimul and versus stimulating and what does it mean to, st like to stimulate and at what frequency. And I think there's some really, really interesting questions because already we see, so um, here's another tangent. Um, we see that brains oscillate, right? So we have like oscillations uh, in the brain, uh, basically where uh, there's different uh, frequency bands that are associated with like different processes, right? So uh, like alpha, which is between eight to 12 Hertz. That's often for like visual cortex, but it's, um, you have, uh, beta, which is like 15 to 30 Hertz. And that's for motor movement. Like when you initiate, when you initiate motor movement, you have beta suppression. So there's things like that, but what we do, what we also see is that there's individual variability between these frequency bands, right? So like my beta is not your beta. My alpha is not your alpha. My theta is not your theta and so forth. Um, and so anytime that now we're going to go in and we're going to start stimulating, you're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to stimulate at a particular frequency, but what is that frequency, right? And how do I determine that frequency? And how do I know what frequency is ideal for me versus for you um, to, for whatever the results are? Now, this is like, again, 
right now it's 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 far away but if but we, we there, there are already like stimulation protocols that we see even uh completely non-invasive like there's things with tms um transcranial magnetic stimulation uh where people have been experimenting with that um and there's also research about using stimulation for psychiatric disorders um, and so forth. So there, it's, it's a huge, huge field. Um, and hopefully that wasn't too much of a tangent. No, not at all. I obviously found it super fascinating. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I think that any of these kinds of any of these kinds of discussions around how we can be using technologies to adapt our brains, either to resolve some, um, you know, some, some negative issue. Um, like you're saying, from strokes to psychiatric issues, um, all the way through to potentially having enhancements, uh, which is, I know, like, you know, some of these brain computer interface BCI um, technologies are designed to, yeah, not just be for resolving issues, but also to potentially augment human capabilities um, in ways that probably we can't predict yet. Um, so I, I don't know, I think it's super, super interesting. And yes, I will be following up with you to see if uh, you have other uh, recommendations for, for people who can dig into kind of a, a BCI episode. So you mentioned, Matar, how your PhD was more intense than some other people's PhDs, neuroscience PhDs, certainly much more intense than orders of magnitude more intense than my uh, PhD was uh, in terms of like being really in the real world and deal dealing with patients. Um, but uh, that wasn't your only intense job that you had. <laughs> so am I reading this correctly? You were teaching children how to use tanks, preschool tank instructor. No, wait, it's yeah. two separate items. Um, yeah, so you were a preschool teacher. You were also a tank instructor. So I'm curious as to whether those experiences helped you prepare for your career. And in particular, maybe this might seem tangential, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if somehow this does tie into an answer, which is that um, I know that you're passionate about expanding leadership opportunities for women in STEM careers, including data science. And so I wonder if we can somehow tie those two topics together. Yeah, sure. Why not? not. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, uh, my military. So um, in Israel, uh, there's a mandatory uh, military service. Um, I actually did kind of like a strange route. Normally, uh, when you're 18, um, you basically, that's when you, you start your military service. I actually did my You went to Berkeley. I did. Right, yeah. Did. You went to Berkeley for an undergrad and then back to Israel to be a tank instructor <laughs> and then back to Berkeley to do your PhD. Yes, correct. True story. Uh, and and so, then now you're back in Israel again. <laughs> and now, God, why can't I make a decision? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and so I did it a bit backwards and I actually decided that, um, for my military service, not like there's, there's not a ton of like flexibility in what you do, but like there's some, uh, and I decided that I want to, I wanted to try out to do something that was like very different from anything that I would ever do. I said, I'm probably going to be in an office for the rest of my life. Uh, I want to do something very different. And I also want to do something that's like kind of scary to me that like, I'm pretty sure I'll fail at it. I think it'll be really difficult. Uh, it's like, comes totally, completely out of my comfort zone. Um, because uh, I think that um, I think that's important, uh, and so and, and and I said you know and the risk here isn't that high like worst case like I won't be that great in the military that's fine, uh, and so um, I um, tried out to be like an instructor uh, and then specifically I saw a tank I was like that machine is amazing uh, I want that uh, and so then I like tried out specifically to be a tank instructor. 
Um, and my the way that it works um, is, uh, at least then, was that uh, they have uh, women that basically we train the the tank the like the um, the soldiers. Um, it uh, where basically in a t- in a tank you have uh, you have the gunner, you have the driver, you have the loader, and you have the commander. Uh, and uh, my role was basically to train the um, the gunners. Uh, and, and then also commanders have to do all of them and, and officers have to know all of them. And so also training like the commanders and, and the officers, uh, and specifically for training the gunners, I was trained on the wep- on the weapon subsystems. So, uh, basically all of the computers and that basically helps them like, uh, under- like all of the computer system within, within the, within the tank, uh, for the, we- the weapon subsystem. Uh, and it was kind of tricky to do my, uh, undergraduate, uh, before, military service because I would ask my commanders questions like so uh the algorithm that it uses to understand like what angle to open is that like does it does it learn through reinforcement learning or and they would just look at me be like what (laughs) 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 who are you like what planet did you come from like what are huh (laughs) um and so that's that's what I did my military service in um and so it included like it was like incredibly physically difficult um because they basically make us go through uh uh, you know, I did basic training, had to do like a, a million and one push-ups, uh, run around a lot, be outside, not sleep, uh, learn how to basically, I was trained on all of the subsystems of the tank, not only the gunners, basically to learn uh, everything that goes on there uh, and then focus in on one uh, because I only got basically after you do basic training, after you learn everything, that's only only after that. And they're like, okay, now you're going to focus on this. Um, and it basically checked all the boxes of being like really, really hard uh, incredibly challenging. Turns out physical isn't the, t- isn't the tough part. It's like mentally very, very difficult. Um, and so that kind of set me up to being kind of less afraid of failure. Um, cause it's tough. Um, after that, I was a preschool teacher, uh, which was by <laughs> far, by far the most difficult job I've ever had by far, by far. Oh, by far. really? Oh yeah! Wow! I even as you were saying that, I thought you were going to say like I had this idea of like cuddles and like laughter and oh, like how yeah. much nicer that would be than yes, like, than, tons of cuddles, tons of tons of cuddles, tons of laughter, but like so physically draining, uh, and like so Whoa. emotionally, like you know, I would dream about my kids, and like it never leaves you. Like you dream about these kids, and you're like thinking about them, and like they, you know. Uh, and I was also like more sick than I've ever been, like constantly sick. I was like always right. on like some sort of antibiotics. Um, no, but it, it's like very, very challenging, but it's also, um, you know, it gives you, it's also another way to do something that's like really tough and gives you a different perspective. And it's both the military and being a preschool teacher are incredibly, incredibly humbling, like very, very humbling. Um, and so I think that's like the biggest takeaway for me, uh, of those things that, that I did. Um, and now, wait, wait, I need to tie it back in to women in STEMs. <laughs> so uh, now I'm a mom. I have three kids. I have uh, a two-year-old, an almost five-year-old, in, in like less than a month, five-year-old, and, uh, and an eight-year-old. Uh, and so first of all, if I'm tying it all into like content moderation, why I do what I do, I think it's like extremely obvious. Like, uh, you know, online harm can turn into offline harm. Uh, and I do want to make sort of, Right. All interactions safer. Um, and in terms of like, I see my daughter and I see the world, uh, she's, she's eight and the, like what it means to be 
to be to be a, a woman in this world and, and a leader in this world. And I want to make sure that she has role models so that she isn't the only woman in her computer science class been there um, so that she has, you know, she isn't the only woman uh, in meetings been there. Um, I want to make sure that she has like a, a much more welcoming environment for whatever she, for whatever she wants to do. And what's really sad to me is that even now uh, there's like discord, like I'm hearing from her things like, Oh, well, you know, boys are better at that than me. No, not true. Very not true. Here's why it's not true. Um, and so these are the kinds of things that like, I want to, first of all, I want to make sure that they're, they're not out there online, these kinds of, uh, you know, speaking of disinformation, uh, but also want to make sure that sort of the environment that she's growing up into is, is much more uh, welcoming. Nice. Well, it's cool to hear how you are, you know, your passions are coming through um, across all aspects of your life and that you're tying together, um, you know, these personal things, these the, the personal things that you'd like to see in the world with what you're doing professionally uh, with respect to things like disinformation. Um, so we were talking about uh, you being in Israel. Obviously, that's come up a number of times in this episode in the military service. Um, another thing that is unique about Israel is that it has very high R&D expenditure per capita. So it is markedly higher than any other nation uh, on the planet. And so that probably creates an interesting flywheel between the strong tech uh, startup ecosystem that there is in Israel. Um, so that you know, helps uh, generate more things that R&D can be spent on. Um, but another interesting piece related to this is that um, I can't remember if this was a podcast conversation that I had in the past. I don't think it was. So I think this is the first time we talked about it on air. But my understanding is that another thing that's fueling tech startups in Israel is this mandatory military service. So you went and did tank instruction. But a lot of people, um, particularly, I suspect a lot of people that already had undergraduate degrees like you did, end up doing things that aren't, you know, you know they're, they're not training to be on the front lines in war. They're training how to do threat intelligence. They're training how to do signal detection. They're using machine learning. Uh, and, and data analysis in the field. And then, so having developed that uh, skill set for several years, when you finish it, you're like, well, uh, what could I do? And one idea that I guess a lot of these people have is, well, I could be making a startup. Um, I could be you know, using using these technology skills um, in industry. So, um, so we have these flywheels um, of, uh, I guess there's two flywheels here. There's one where, the mandatory military training um, creates uh, leads people to be tech entrepreneurs, uh, and then that probably in turn also um, is helpful for military capabilities in general. Uh, and then you have this separate flywheel of um, of R and D, where this strong tech ecosystem um, is a self fulfilling prophecy of oh great, you know we should be investing more in this, and so then more people go into that and. Yeah, so I've I've now talked a lot. A lengthy transition. Uh, the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes, yes, and yes. Um, so yeah, we have mandatory military service. It's currently set at uh, on like in general, roughly speaking, two years for women, uh, three years for men. Again, with lots and lots of caveats. Um, and and uh, and there's sort of first of all, there's definitely like a big investment of the military in. Um, 
in uh, technology, whether it's like signal processing or AI or whatever. And so um, then you have people that are basically trained in that, like you said, and then they can go out and they have this skill set. And we, we hire people, you know, everyone's hiring uh, those sets of people. But even people that aren't going into these sorts of fields, the fact that there's this mandatory military service means that already um, from a young age, you're in a place where you're picking up skills that are necessary to succeed in you know, in these companies, right? So, uh, lead, for example, leadership skills, right? Like you can go, uh, basically in most cases in order to become an officer in our military, you have to start at the bottom. Like, it's not like, uh, in the U S where you have like West point and the Naval Academy or whatever. And then, and then that's how you become an officer. Uh, basically you start when you're 18 and then, uh, based on different parameters, you can, you can be, you can elect, or you can be chosen to, to do officers training. And so then you have these people that are, that are leaving the military, with a skill set of, you know, being like very focused, you know, focused and, uh, and leadership skills and managerial skills and time management skills and all these things that basically saying, oh, that's for a successful entrepreneur, um, or a successful, uh, CEO. Um, and so yes, it's one of them is like on the job training. And the other one is just like in general, these like other skills they need to have. And another thing that I think, um, is really positive about the fact that it's a sort of mandatory military service is that it's sort of this like equalizing force, right? So everyone goes into the military almost huge caveat, which is like causing right now a lot of social unrest here, but we'll leave that for a different story for a different time. Uh, but you go into the military and you're mixed with, with different people. Right. Uh, and so that's also a way of like meeting people that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise meet then kind of out of your, you know, echo chamber out of your specific place. And then that can also be like a very, uh, like an incubator for like new relationships that can then go off and, and start new companies. And then, um, yes, I think the fact that uh, we have a very, very strong investment in R&D is also, like you said, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Like what do people want to go end up doing? What do people end up doing is they go to this field, right? It's like, that's that's what we know. That's what we see. That's 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 sort of like, um, a, that's also a very good way for upward mobility um, for, for people. And so with our field in particular, with data science, do you think that all of this R&D in Israel will give Israel an edge in AI technology in particular? Yeah. So I, uh, I yes, absolutely. Um, I think that um, already uh, we're seeing that. Uh, so I have uh, people that I that I work with. Uh, uh, one of which, uh, like, it, she used to be like very very senior uh, in the military and in in, in AI. Um, she's uh, uh, she I work with her very closely. She's she's our our VPI product, uh, Nurit, and so she was very, very senior uh, in the military in building uh, AI infrastructure capabilities. So there's already this sort of cross-pollination. We also have people that either, like I said, we hire right out of the military, or uh, in some rare cases, we have people that sort of start doing their studies first before, right? The military says, okay, like you can take this time, you you know, we pay for your studies, then you sign on for a certain amount of time later uh, for the military. And in some cases, we can also hire these people while they're in their studies. Uh, And then the skills that they learn with us, they can then go and use uh, in, in the military. Um, so there is this, this definite cross-pollination, uh, that we're seeing. And I think that it also definitely puts, you know, there's puts AI, uh, as like a very, very strong and core component of the industry here, uh, because it's so useful, not only in the military, right. But in general, in, in, in all of the companies that are going on. And so there's like this very, very rich, uh, community here, um, of, you know, researchers, practitioners, and so forth. Great answer, crystal clear, and exciting to see uh, what ActiveFence and other AI companies will be uh, doing out of Israel in the coming years and the coming decades. This has been an awesome episode, Matar. So uh, I was promised that you were this extraordinary speaker, and you have proved to be an amazing communicator. It's been a real joy to speak to you. 
Thank you. And so I'm sure our audience loved this conversation as well. Uh, Thank you. And um, so we covered a lot of interesting topics, um, automated uh, harmful content detection, neuroscience, military service, uh, preschoolers. Uh, So uh, I'm sure our uh, listeners will want to uh, hear more from you. Um, So first, uh, my penultimate question that I always ask guests is whether you have a book recommendation for our audience. Of course. Uh, So uh, this has nothing to do with anything that we talked about, um, but I really like the book uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, It's by John Krakauer, who wrote uh, Into the Wild. Uh, I think. uh, Oh, yeah. I've read that. um, I love reading books about sort of like other other lives uh, or other other places. And so Under the Banner of Heaven is, is a good one. Nice. Yeah. John Krakauer is a uh, an outstanding author based on uh, Into the Wild. So I'm sure that that's a great recommendation. He's also, he's an annoying person for me when I type my, start typing my name into Google. Oh, that's he, true. He's the one who comes up until I get to the O in my last name. Um, <laughs> so I'm always reminded of him. Maybe that's what primes <laughs> me to think of that book of all books I could have. <laughs> there you go. Um, and yeah, and then my final question for you is how should people follow you and glean more insights from you after the program? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, like everyone. Um, I also, we have a R&D tech blog for ActDefense. It's engineering.actdefense.com. And that's where you can read more about the things that we do uh, and uh, dive into some more, some more details. Uh, and please feel free to shoot me an email. Um, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to chat. Nice. Thank you for making that offer to our listeners, Matar. And thank you so much for being on the program, especially on such short notice. We booked you just days before recording this episode. Oh, don't say that. It makes it seem like I have no life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah, as uh, I mean, it actually, it just shows, you know, how kind you were to make this time because you've got three kids the VP of data and AI at a very fast growing, high valued company. And so thank you for making the time, despite that, uh, to fit our super data science listeners in. Happy to. Nice. Well, yeah. So you mentioned uh, potentially being on the show again in the future. And uh, that sounds great to me. We can hear about um, how um, ActDefense uh, continues to shape this uh this, this harmful content reduction space in the years to come. Thanks, Matar. Thank you for having me. This was fascinating and a lot of fun. I love this conversation today. I hope you did too. In today's episode, Matar filled us in on how an ML model such as a binary classifier can become contextual by taking into account additional context. For example, we can pull out a logo from an image, identify the individual in an image and compare it with a database. We can examine natural language comments and consider the content poster's history and graph network affiliations. She also talked about how real-time streaming of harmful content presents unique challenges that can be addressed by smaller models on edge devices like phones, sampling on servers, and again, taking into account context. She talked about how we can create a flywheel of defensible commercial AI systems by amassing proprietary data curated by internal experts. And she talked about how she uses Python, Node.js, TypeScript, and Kubernetes for developing ML models, deploying them into production, and scaling them up for ActiveFences users. 
As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Matar's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 683. That's superdatascience.com slash 683. Your feedback is invaluable, both for spreading the word about this show, as well as helping me shape future episodes more to your liking. So please rate the show on whichever platform you listen to it through, and feel free to converse with me directly through public posts or comments on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. All right, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another captivating episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors, whom I've hand-selected as partners because I expect their products to be genuinely of interest to you. Please consider supporting this show by checking out our sponsors' links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Finally, thanks, of course, to you for listening. It's because you listen that I'm here. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. <laughs>